This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Out of the Blue podcast. I'm Nitin Seem, and I'm excited to discuss a very interesting article that's now published online in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. The article is entitled, Nitric Oxide Decreases Acute Kidney Injury and Stage 3 Chronic Kidney Disease After Cardiac Surgery. And joining me to discuss it are corresponding author, Dr. Lorenzo Berra, as well as Dr. Mark Gladwin, who's the author of the accompanying editorial. Thank you both for joining me. I'd like to start the podcast asking you both to briefly introduce yourself and report any relevant disclosures. First, Dr. Baer. Thank you for having me. Um, so um, I'm an anesthesiologist and critical care physician at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, and I also serve as the medical director for respiratory care. For disclosure, my salary is support, supported partially by NIH K23 grant titled Hemolysis and Nitric Oxide. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Dr. Barra. And Dr. Gladwin, if you could introduce yourself and report if you have any relevant disclosures. My name is Mark Gladwin. I'm the director of the Vascular Medicine Institute and the chair of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, My research focuses on nitrite and nitric oxide signaling and therapeutics. I don't have any disclosures relevant to inhaled nitric oxide, but I do have patents and provisional patents on the use of nitrite, which is a nitric oxide prodrug for cardiovascular indications. Okay. Well, thank you both uh, for introducing yourself. And clearly, we have two experts on nitric oxide or well-positioned to talk about this paper. Uh, And I'd like to start with a question for Dr. Gladwin. Just uh, as, as a brief intro to our listeners, the current study is a randomized trial conducted in China of adults undergoing elective multiple valve, uh, multiple heart valve replacement surgery. Dr. Barra and colleagues studied the effects of nitric oxide, or NO, I think, as we'll refer to it during the podcast, during and after prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass and studied the effect on kidney injury. Why would treatment with NO make sense in this clinical situation? So there's two important principles uh, to understand related to this study. The, the first is that cardiopulmonary bypass obviously requires bypassing the heart and putting a patient on a circulatory pump that will maintain perfusion pressure of blood. These pumps tend over time to create some stress on red blood cells and they produce hemolysis. The intensity of the intravascular hemolysis is proportional to the time on pump. So longer, more complicated cases like in this study that require valve replacement or perhaps valve replacement as well as coronary artery bypass will result in more intravascular hemolysis. Now, the way hemolysis relates to nitric oxide is that nitric oxide is a colorless, odorless, highly diffusible gas molecule that's produced by our endothelial cells that line our blood vessels. This nitric oxide is very important in in maintaining perfusion to our organs by vasodilating. It actually relaxes smooth muscles in the blood vessels and opens up blood vessels to improve blood flow. 
Nitric oxide also inhibits platelets and clotting factors and can inhibit inflammatory signaling pathways. What happens is hemoglobin, when released from a red cell, is a very potent nitric oxide scavenger. Hemoglobin will react with nitric oxide in a reaction that oxidizes the hemoglobin and converts the nitric oxide to an inert nitrate. So hemolysis leads to nitric oxide scavenging. So in this study by Barra, they proposed that inhaled NO would really drive the same reaction, but that reaction would occur in the pulmonary circulation, and it would then actually oxidize the hemoglobin in the pulmonary circulation, so now that hemoglobin could not oxidize NO in the distal organs like the kidneys. I hope that's clear. Yes, thank you, Mark. Actually, that's a very elegant explanation that simplified a very complex concept, so thank you for for that. And I think the natural follow-up, if I could ask you, Dr. Gladwin, be, so I assume this isn't the first study to evaluate this, since it does make sense in this car, uh, NO in this cardiac surgery population. So what have prior studies shown? So there's been a number of studies that have linked the intensity of hemolytic anemia in a variety of disease states with both the inhibition of in vivo nitric oxide signaling and organ system complications. We first showed this many years back in patients with sickle cell disease, where we found that the patients with homozygous sickle cell disease that had higher rates of hemolysis had lower NO production uh, as measured by their endothelial function. There have been studies by other groups that have shown that hemolysis in the setting of cardiopulmonary bypass also inhibited nitric oxide signaling. And uh, Dr. Barra has done a number of studies in the past showing that transfusion of aged blood, for example, which hemolyzed more, would produce pulmonary vasoconstriction and the inhibition of NO signaling. And he was able to show that nitric oxide inhalation could reverse that effect. There have also been many animal studies. For example, Chuck Natanson at the NIH, his group, looked at hemolysis in vivo in canine models and they were able to show that the hemolysis inhibited NO signaling and that they could give inhaled NO gas to blunt that effect and essentially restore uh, nitric oxide signaling. And of relevant to this study, they were able to improve kidney blood flow uh, and kidney filtration with the inhaled NO and the hemolysis models. The last thing I'd point out is that there have been some nice studies in children with prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass for uh, congenital heart disease and in other uh, coronary artery bypass studies where they've shown that hemolysis leads to kidney injury. And it's now well accepted that one of the complications of intravascular hemolysis is the development of acute kidney injury, similar to what we see with rhabdomyolysis. Remember, in rhabdomyolysis, you get release of muscle myoglobin, which damages the kidneys. With hemolysis, you get release of red cell hemoglobin, which is similarly filtered and damages the kidney. Well, thank you for uh, for reviewing that data f- with us, and I think that that really leads us into the current study and really shows why why this really make makes sense. Um, uh, and so, Dr. Barra, I'd like you to to provide us, if you would, some of the study details. So, just to start, who were the patients, and what were their indications for cardiac surgery? As we think about, you know, how this may relate to our own patient populations. Certainly. So, uh, 
first of all, let, let's say this trial um, uh, is a really a result of a collaborative uh, project between uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston and uh, the Xijin Hospital in Xi'an, China. Uh, the patients uh, were enrolled exclusively at the Xijin Hospital in China, while instead uh, here at MGH and at Brigham we performed uh, some analysis of uh, urine and uh, plasma. So, um, in, uh, uh, as Mark was saying before, uh, in preliminary studies uh, we recognize that the length of cardiopulmonary bypass is associated with increasing levels of hemolysis. So we decided, therefore, to enroll patients that were going under the cardiopulmonary bypass for prolonged periods. And so we selected patients that required multiple valve replacement. In the analysis of the study, we included 244 adult patients. 127 patients were randomized to receive nitrogen. Okay, that was the placebo group, and uh, 117 patients were randomized to receive nitric oxide gas. The two groups were balanced for demographic and surgical characteristics, but I would just like to point out the differences also with mostly what we are used to see in the operating room in the United States and Europe. The average age of the two groups was 48 years old. The subjects were mostly female, 58% versus 42% male. And, the, and these were thin patients with an average body weight around 22 of BMI. The indication for surgery, 93% um, of the cases was due to rheumatic heart disease, while the remaining 7% were multiple valve replacement due to infection, valve disease, and congenital valve disease. For characteristic intra-hospital characteristics, um, we had similar in the two groups uh, the time for surgery, which was uh, about 230 and 240 minutes. The aortic cross-clamping cross time, so the ischemia time, was about 70 minutes. And the duration of cardiopulmonary bypass was about two hours in both groups. We decided to deliver nitric oxide gas at 80 parts per million, and the study and the duration was 24 hours from the time of the starting of the cardiopulmonary bypass. We delivered gas, both either nitrogen in the placebo group or nitric oxide, through the cardiopulmonary bypass while the procedure was ongoing, and then we switched to the ventilator when the patient was ventilating through the ventilator. The gas administration then was stopped after 24 hours or if the patient was extubated before. Okay, well, that, that's actually very helpful in, in a lot of that detail. Um, and the question obviously becomes you can't, you can't randomize. Uh, every, someone's going to know what they're giving in, in the tank. But so, um, you know, what were the two groups randomized to receive, um, and who was blinded and who was not blinded to study assignment? 
Yes, so the um, the participants and the caregivers, the surgeons, were blinded to the group assignments. However, as you suggest, as you pointed out, the intensive care unit physician and the perfusionist in the operating room were not blinded because they prepared the gas tanks. Also, they were also um, responsible to measure blood met hemoglobin levels and nitrogen dioxide concentration uh, for safety concern, of course. In fact, for safety, we uh, adopted uh, the, sec the following criteria. We um, use uh, uh, no more than one part per million of uh, uh, inhaled nitrogen dioxide and the met hemoglobin levels were maintained below 10%. And then if met hemoglobin was going to be higher than 10%, we cut down nitric oxide concentration to 40 parts per million. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining the study and, and how you designed it and, you know, comparing the group that received either NO for the 24 hours or up until extubation uh, versus the group um, receiving nitrogen. What were the, the primary study outcomes and what did you find? So the primary endpoint of this study was the incidence of acute kidney injury. The criteria that uh, we adopted for the trial was the AKIN uh, criteria, which is a serum creatinine by 50% increase from baseline and 0.3 milligram deciliter within two days after surgery. We found that the AKI was reduced from 64% in the placebo group to 50% in the nitric oxide group. I think that one of the strengths also of our study was the secondary renal outcomes. We were able to follow patients up to one year after cardiac surgery and assess development of stage 3 kidney disease, uh, which was defined as a, an estimated glomerular filtration rate less than 60 milliliters per minute. And uh, we also measure major adverse kidney events, uh, which we defined as a composite outcome of a loss of 25% of EGFR and stage renal disease and re requirement for renal replacement therapy. What we found was that at one year, stage 3 CKD was reduced from 31% in the placebo group to 18% in the nitric oxide group. And also we saw at, always at one year that the major adverse kidney events were decreased from 14% in the placebo group to 6% in the nitric oxide group. We didn't find any other difference um, in terms of intra-hospital outcomes or other long-term outcomes variables, such as mortality or hospital readmission. Hmm. So just to you know, um, sum up a couple of those things, so your primary endpoint acute in, uh, kidney injury within the first week post-surgery was reduced from 64 to 50% uh, with NO, and that was statistically significant. And then... It was very interesting following patients up for one year and seeing that there was a um, significant 13% a reduction that was statistically significant in stage 3 kidney disease. Um, so just uh, now what was another interesting part of your study, in, in my view, was the fact that you did 
look at the relevant plasma and urine biomarkers. And as you both said at the beginning of this um, discussion, that hemolysis was such an important part of this, obviously, pathogenesis-wise. So could you tell us about you, what you found uh, when you looked at the plasma and urine biomarkers and how you put that together with your clinical findings? Yes, so we uh, we measured um, um, hemolysis uh, by measuring plasma-free hemoglobin in, um, in the circulating uh, blood and also hemoglobinuria in, uh, in the urine. And we found that there was uh, the same amount of plasma-free hemoglobin and the hemoglobinuria increase in the two groups. This actually um, made us understand that really that the hemolysis was comparable and it was similar in the two in the two groups. However, I think the major uh, uh, interesting point was that uh, when we measure um, nitric oxide consumption, which is in plasma, which is uh, really the um, the amount of uh, nitric oxide that is consumed by the plasma because uh, of uh, the uh, conversion of oxyhemoglobin circulating to methemoglobin, we found that in the nitric oxide group, the level of uh, nitric oxide consumption did not decrease, which means that uh, there was no consumption of a vascular nitric oxide the nitric oxide that was produced by the endothelium. Instead, in the group that did not receive nitric oxide, the nitric oxide consumption was uh, uh, increased, suggesting that there was depletion and uh, decreased bioavailability of nitric oxide in circulation. We also measure, actually, uh, urine biomarkers uh, such as KIM-1 and GAL and NAG that are being used uh, in early detection of in multiple studies for early detection of kidney injury. And we found actually that KIM-1 and GAL and NAG increased after cardiopulmonary bypass in the nitric oxide group, statistically significant increase compared to the placebo group. So we, we, I think this has been a uh, contradictive, if uh, I may say, uh, results. And uh, so we are still working on understanding the biology behind this increase of, bio, of urine biomarkers. But for now, we, um, we speculate that the renal biomarkers are very sensitive markers of tubular stress and they not, may not reflect the overall function of the nephrons, especially if nitric oxide is a, is a vasodilator um, at, the, at, the level of the at the level of the glomerule and the nephron. So that, that is one possible explanation. And another possible explanation is that uh, renal biomarkers per se have their own nephron protective properties. So we need to understand whether nitric oxide gas might direct increased secretion of these urine biomarkers. I think this is a, a part of a, a studies that we are conducting for uh, 
um, that we are actually very interested and hopefully uh, we'll be able to explore mechanism regulating the secretion of urinary biomarkers and kidney repair during nitric oxide treatment. Well, thank you for explaining that, Dr. Barra, and, and thank you for uh, <laughs> being uh, quite candid about you know, the, the confusing renal biomarkers there and, and making a best attempt at hypothesizing what those findings mean. So, Dr. Gladwin, I'd like to come back to you and ask you for your impressions in terms of the findings of the clinical improvement in terms of short-term acute kidney injury in the first week, long-term progression to stage 3 kidney disease at one year, and your thoughts about some of the, the biomarkers such as uh, nitric oxide consumption. Sure. Well, from a basic science standpoint, what's really interesting about this study is that, and, and studies like it, is that the inhaled nitric oxide is not being used to deliver nitric oxide to the kidney. One might think that we're giving inhaled nitric oxide to increase the levels of nitric oxide in the kidney. But we have to remember that nitric oxide reacts so fast with hemoglobin, either free hemoglobin during hemolysis or even red cell hemoglobin, that very little of that nitric oxide, in fact, none of that nitric oxide can make it to the kidney. So what we're really doing in this study is, is you're seeing the nitric oxide react in the, the pulmonary circulation very rapidly and inactivate that cell-free plasma hemoglobin that's, that's circulating in the blood from the hemolysis. And so we're converting that hemoglobin from the reduced state or oxyhemoglobin to the oxidized state or met hemoglobin. And that met hemoglobin cannot scavenge nitric oxide in the kidney. Now, one interesting thing about this is that met hemoglobin that you're making um, can do other bad things. Met hemoglobin can itself participate in oxidative reactions with lipids and with uh, to form uh, oxolipids. Uh, it can um, release its heme, and that free heme can drive heme-mediated reactions. And we now appreciate that heme itself can activate the inflammasome and toll-like receptor 4. So a fascinating part of this result in studies like it is that for kidney injury, perhaps the most important reaction that causes trouble is the scavenging reaction of nitric oxide because when you oxidize the hemoglobin, uh, which you'd think would promote more heme release, uh, you actually have protection. So I think some of the biomarker responses you, you may be seeing are related to other reactions of the hemoglobin that are not nitric oxide reactions, like the generation of heme um, or the toxic effects of met hemoglobin. From a clinical standpoint, these studies are also intriguing because it suggests that perhaps we could use inhaled nitric oxide for other diseases like rhabdomyolysis or acute alloimmune hemolytic crises or TTP, where we have very high rates of intravascular hemolysis. Rather than just focusing on bypass, could we use inhaled NO in the intensive care unit for bad active rhabdomyolysis with myoglobinuria and myoglobinemia? Could we use it with a PNH crisis? Could we use it with severe autoimmune hemolytic reactions? Could we use it with any of the microangiopathic hemolytic anemias? So I think that opens the door to those kind of questions. 
Finally, uh, in terms of limitations, you know, I think Dr. Barrett briefly mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but these patients are not that similar to the types of patients we we operate on in the United States. Many of these patients needed valve replacement for rheumatic heart disease. These cases tend to be a little more complex, a little longer time on pump, and maybe they have more hemolysis. And therefore, maybe this is a group of patients that are most likely to benefit from inhaled NO. In the U.S., we have patients that are different. You know, they tend to be patients with more comorbidities, more diabetes, more baseline endothelial dysfunction. Maybe we're going to do more cases off-pump or quicker cases. So whether this therapy will work in the U.S. remains to be determined. Now, finally, the argument that it will be relevant comes from uh, a number of bypass studies conducted in the U.S. and Europe, and uh, there was recently a study at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's uh, Children's Hospital where they looked at children that got bypassed for congenital heart disease. Now, these cases are complicated. They are long, and the children do have a lot of hemolysis, and they were able to show that there was an increase both in some of the biomarkers of kidney injury as well as actual acute kidney injury. That makes me think that these studies performed in China will actually be relevant to our U.S. populations, particularly if we focus on the patients that we anticipating anticipate will have a longer time on pump. Patients with valve replacements, patients maybe with more complex coronary disease, redo surgeries, surgeries in older patients, et cetera. Um, and I think that's, that's the real question that needs to be answered uh, next in clinical research studies. That's really interesting, Mark, and not just talking about the <clears throat> the relevant cardiac surgery population, uh, but also the broader ICU population of people with um, aggressive hemolytic anemias uh, and a potentially a, a, a different therapeutic approach there. A lot of food for thought there. Uh, Dr. Barrett, I'd like to ask you, we did mention um, a couple of times the NO dosing and, and 80 parts per million is um, a high dose, and I know you, as you mentioned, you took uh, cautions of following met hemoglobin and having the ability to to decrease that. But I thought it'd be worth a moment for you to comment of how you picked that dose and how that was tolerated in the in the patients in the trial. Sure. So we used the 80 pass per million of nitric oxide, and the rationale behind it is that we wanted to oxidize all circulating plasma oxyhemoglobin to methemoglobin at the first pass in the oxygenator or the cardiopulmonary bypass machine or in the lungs when the patient were ventilating. Uh, we did not observe any adverse events uh, of using 80 parts per million um, of nitric oxide, but I just want to remind you that uh, our uh, um, threshold level was at 10% of met hemoglobin at any time. We had one, the highest level that one patient uh, reached 9.3% of met hemoglobin. Uh, but no other adverse events. Well, thank you. Uh, and I'd like to close the podcast just talking about where we go from here. Uh, and I'd like to start with you, Dr. Barra, and then I'll have Dr. come back to Dr. Godwin to close. But first, Dr. Barra, you know, as we've discussed, that there were very intriguing positive outcomes with NO in this study. Uh, obviously, the next step would be to develop, uh, to confirm this. 
in a, uh, a patient population that's more consistent with U.S. practice or, uh, you know, other Western practice, as, as Dr. Gladwin mentioned, um, and there had been some other prior conflicting studies. So what do you see as the next, next steps in figuring out the role of NO in cardiac surgery, and how do you take the findings of this study to inform future clinical trials? Our efforts uh, now are uh, directed really on the, to answer your questions. So um, in June 2017, uh, one of my fellows, uh, Dr. Francesco Marrazzo, has uh, started a trial here at MGH. It's a randomized double-blind clinical trial in cardiosurgical patients that has endothelial dysfunction. Um, these patients require also, we selected patients that require prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass. And the questions that we want to answer to this, uh, with this trial uh, are two. Um, the first really is, uh, can we replicate these results in an American cardiosurgical patients that are much older, as we said before, they have many comorbidities, such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity. And I think that uh, what is interesting to observe is that these comorbidities are associated with a decreased function of the endothelium, uh, which causes a decreased vascular, vascular availability of nitric oxide. So I think the, that there is an opportunity here to, to deliver exogenous nitric oxide that could be even more beneficial for organ protection against uh, hemolysis-mediated organ injury. The second question that we also wanted to, to tackle is, that, uh, is to really understand the mechanism of a protection of uh, nitric oxide during hemolysis. And I think there is an opportunity for us to describe more precisely the protective role of nitric oxide to organs by close hemodynamic monitoring. All these patients have pulmonary artery catheters and transesophageal uh, echocardiography and also correlate uh, with evaluation of endothelial function of the, uh, at the level of the microcirculation. So that is really one area of uh, studies that uh, we engaged. The second is that uh, Dr. Chong Lei and her colleagues in China have now organized a network of hospitals to perform a, a phase three multicenter randomized clinical trial to look at whether nitric oxide gas during cardiac surgery actually can save lives and decrease number of dialyzed patients. And uh, one, I think, again, uh, one thing to underline is that uh, in China, as well as uh, many other regions in Asia, rheumatic heart disease remains uh, the number one cause of uh, uh, cardiac surgery, especially for uh, multiple valve replacement, and is uh, uh, respons responsible for uh, more than half million of deaths each year in Asia with millions of patients uh, waiting for uh, heart surgery. So if nitric oxide is able to reduce chronic kidney disease in patients in their 40s, I think that most likely this will translate in a large multicenter trial uh, in improved survival and decreased number of patients requiring dialysis.
So, and then I'd like to to close the podcast by asking you, Mark. It sounds like Dr. Barra is uh, his collaborators are working on some studies to answer some of these questions, and, and you also mentioned sort of broader implications of the finding of NO and and other hemolytic anemia. So, uh, obviously, as an expert in in NO, uh, I'd ask you. What do you think next steps? Anything else you'd add regarding cardiac surgery um, or in the broader ICU population at, at large, for example, those with, with hemolytic anemias and, and how we can use the results of the study to for, inform us going forward? Well, first I want to compliment Dr. Barra and his colleagues. Um, it's very hard to do uh, translational research and clinical trials, and he's done a lovely job of combining mechanistic assessment with very innovative uh, study designs, really exploring some of the endpoints that we really haven't looked at very much in patients with hemolysis or cardiopulmonary bypass. And uh, he's a good example of a physician scientist with a K award who's really pushing the envelope of translational research. So uh, that's sort of inspiring to to see. Um, In terms of where this goes forward, I think uh, confirming this um, in patients with long bypass times in the U.S. and Europe will be important. Uh, Extending the results into China, it's worth pointing out that nitric oxide gas is off patent now, so this is um, really something that could be broadly available to populations, so it's very exciting uh, to test this in coronary bypass patients and larger trials. Finally, you know, we're we're in the middle of this uh, terrible opioid epidemic where we're seeing remarkable rates of um, overdoses and in our ICUs. We're seeing a lot of patients, young patients, admitted with multi-system injury after overdose. And one of the most prominent features that we see is rhabdomyolysis with acute kidney injury. I'd be very interested in seeing whether inhaled NO could be beneficial in these young patients uh, with multi-system ischemia reperfusion injury. Um, and I think the, the time is right now uh, with, with all the, the sort of the tragic consequences of the opioid epidemic we're seeing. Thanks so much for having us on on this show, and and I really love this podcast series. So so thank you, Nitin. Well, thank you, and I, I thank you both, uh, Dr. Barra and Dr. Gladwin. You took time out of your busy schedules and had a great discussion. And as Dr. Gladwin, a very interesting paper, both looking at uh, the clinical outcomes and mechanisms. Um, just to wrap up, to our listeners, you'll find this the paper by. Dr. Lay and Barra and colleagues, as well as Dr. Gladwin's editorial. You can find it right now at atsjournals.org, and it will be in print in an upcoming issue of the journal. I'd also encourage our listeners to subscribe to the Out of the Blue podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.